You know, friendship is such a powerful thing. But the thing about friendship is both people have to decide they're in. I remember when I was in elementary school, I spent the first four years, grades one to grade four, in my school in Manila, and then my family came back to the States for a year, and so um, I was in the States that year, and then we went back to Manila, and so now I'm starting sixth grade in Manila at a school that I had been in for many years, and this, the sad thing for me was I, I was stuck in a class of all new students. They didn't know me. All of my friends and buddies were in the other classes. And I remember going into this class of people I didn't know, and I tried to at least be friendly and make friends. And one of the girls in the class said to me, hey, listen, stop trying to be our friends. We've already got friends. We don't want you to be our friend. Leave us alone. Now, have you ever had anybody stiff arm you like that? I'm sure you have. You know, sixth grade, they don't care. It took me a while. Finally, I started m- making a few friends. One of, them, one of those guys became a very good friend for many years. You know, have you ever tried to develop a friendship, but that person wouldn't allow it? Now, if you came today at the invitation of a friend, that's not you, because you're here, and you're working to develop a friendship. But um, maybe it was a boy and girl relationship and you tried to take it to the next level. Now, that's my story. When I tried to tell Cindy, who was a dear friend of mine, that I really liked her, and that maybe, you know, we could date, and things could happen, and she, she actually stiff-armed me, and she gave me this speech. She said, Eddie, you and I have been friends for a long time, and I want to protect our friendship, but I don't think it's ever gonna go beyond just a friendship. So, you know, I don't think you should keep trying. Well, I, I didn't take her advice. I decided to endure the humiliation and to try again. After three times of asking her to marry me, she finally said yes. And we've been together for almost 40 years. I hate to tell you that because you'll think I'm an old guy. Um, But you know what? It, It takes someone to be willing to keep paying the price to deepen the relationship. I know perhaps there are some parents here today and you have adult children. And the honest truth is, you know, things weren't always perfect in your family. And maybe some things went wrong. And, and now the children are adults and they're grown, but they, they feel distant from you. And you so wish they could be the little kids jumping all over, over you again. I mean, you look around and you see other families where when they, when they go to Christmas dinner, it's not just being polite and, and kind. It, there's like a connection that's still there. And you want that to happen again, but, but, but your kids won't let you do that, and they, they just keep stiff-arming you. Or maybe you're a child, and you want very much to have a close relationship with your parent, but it's been really hard. Things have not been easy, and as much as you try, you, you just don't know how to make that connection better. Um, other people seem to have close family relations, but, but you don't, and you don't know what to do. 
Maybe it's you in marriage. And you know this happens all the time. The courtship moves on to a, a commitment and then a couple people just get busy and they are just living together and the spark is gone and the romance is gone. And I remember Cindy and I, throughout our time, we have observed people and sometimes we, we've come across some older couples than we are. I'm, I'm gonna be real careful to not call anybody old here. Um, and you know, you, you notice, but look at that couple. That, Look at the way they look at each other. Look at the way they hold on to each other. You can still see there's a spark there. It's beautiful. And, and we would say to each other, hey, let's be that kind of couple when we get old. We have to keep investing. Um, relationships are not easy. Friendships require time and attention. You can't force someone to go to the next level in the relationship. They can stop it. And you know, the truth is that the amazing story of God in the Bible is that the Old Testament and the New Testament give us story after story of a God who wants so very much to be in, in an intimate relationship with us. He created us to love us and to know us. And yet time and time again in the history of mankind, people are pushing God away. And even when they acknowledge that, that God is there and they, they should respect him, it, there's no closeness. Um, God longs for a rich and meaningful and personal relationship with us. When Jesus told stories, he pictured God as being like a father, a father who chases and waits for his prodigal son, who after insulting him and taking everything runs away, but the father still waits. And finally, when the son comes home, he receives him and things get better. Jesus pictured God as a great shepherd, a shepherd who loves the sheep, a shepherd who's willing to sacrifice for the sheep. Uh, Isaiah 53, verse six says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd in John 10. I know my sheep, my sheep know me just as the father knows me, I, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And he goes on and he says, I am not like the hired servant who when the wolf comes, he runs away. I am the shepherd of the sheep who loves and cares for my sheep and I am willing to lay down my life to rescue them. That's what God wants. He wants a relationship. But the sad truth is that oftentimes you and I default to a relationship with God that is, you know, distant but respectful, polite but not personal, religious but not so much real. And what God wants for us is so much more than polite. He wants us to have a personal 
relationship with him. In Revelation chapter 3, there is this uh, section where um, there are letters written to different churches. And the one I want to look at today is in verse 14 of Revelation 3. And this is the section, this is what it says. And to the angel of the church of of the Laodiceans write this. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is what he says. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Okay, so what is God really thinking, right? I mean, what God is saying is, I am looking for a genuine and real and passionate and intimate relationship with you. I don't want you to just be polite. I don't want you to just have sort of this religious sort of surface level relationship. I want to know you. I want to be a part of your life. I I want to be the God that you go to at all times in the good and the bad. That's what I want. I created you to have a relationship with you. In John, in his gospel, he says this, in the beginning was the word, it's capital W, it's speaking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So you can see there's always been this tension between the fact that God is coming to us. I mean, he wants to be in our lives, but the darkness and who we are seems to struggle to connect to God. Do you ever feel that tension? He goes on in Revelation to say this, because you say I'm rich and become, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. So this is God's heart. Hey, if you come to me, I'm gonna make you rich. I've paid the price. This gold refined in the fire. White, ask me for white garments that you will, that you will be clothed, that, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So do you feel ashamed with God? Are you afraid he won't receive you? Do you not wanna be exposed? You know what he's saying? He says, I'm gonna give you gold to make you rich. I'm gonna clothe you in white garments because you don't need to be afraid of me. Don't be ashamed. Let me cover you. I'm going to cover you. And then he says, and let me give you a salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so in this passage, Jesus is saying to these people that are church people, I'm so tired of the polite, religious and distant relationship that we have. I've actually got so much more to give you. I'm ready to give it to you. 
It's interesting that after he gives this sort of moment of chastening, you might, you might expect that God would say, and so because this is who you are, you disgust me, I'm done with you, get out of here. He doesn't say that, though. You know what he says? He says, I've got so much more to give you. And then in verse 20, this is the verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Do you hear that? As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus, in the middle of correcting this church, ends with this amazing, grace-filled invitation, and he says, I get it, not everything's right. But I love you so much, I'm not leaving. I stand at the door and I knock because I want us to move forward in a relationship that is full of intimacy. I I want you to know me and I want to know you. The amazing thing is that God doesn't lack the power to open a door. You think God can't barge in on you? But what he does is he knocks because what he really wants more than anything is not just to get in, but for you to invite him in. You know, love, by definition, has to be chosen. You can make people obey. You can make people fear you. But what God wants is he wants you to choose him. Because you have discovered that he is so good, so faithful, so true, so merciful, so compassionate, so long-suffering. You know, if you're here today and you, you think about God and you know you, you know you gotta like, yes, sir, every now and then because he's God and who knows what it'll do to me. You got the wrong understanding of who God is. God is a God who wants to give us life more abundantly. And it doesn't matter how many times we stumble and fall, he's going to keep coming back at us. You know why? Because the very reason he created you is to love you. 
There's this guy who was alive in 1859 to 1907 by the name of Francis Joseph Thompson. He was an English poet. And, um, you know, when, when he was a young man, because his father was a doctor and his father insisted that he go to medical school, he did go to medical school at the age of 18. But when he was 26, he left home to pursue the real love of his life, and that was um, writing. And he became quite an amazing poet. One of his most famous um, works of poetry is called The Hound of Heaven. And Thompson was a Christian, but he led a very troubled life. He had health problems, financial problems. He was addicted to opium, which at that time was a legal substance, but dangerous. Um, he, He looked at the turmoil of his life, and he kept expecting to find that God had turned his face away to him in disgust. After all, Thompson had made such a mess of everything. Surely God had abandoned such an unworthy servant. And yet somehow, in the deepest parts of his being, Thompson's felt the presence of God and coming, that, that presence of God and God coming after him, God attempting to rescue him, even from himself. And that's when he wrote this poem that has become quite famous, The Hound of Heaven. And this is how it kind of goes. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him uh, down the labyrinth uh, ways of my own mind. And in the midst of my tears, I hid from him. He describes the relentless pursuit of what he calls the hound of heaven, the sound of divine footfalls behind him, the unhurried pace of the patient hunter, the voice that continues to remind him that there can be no other God, no other sanctuary. His love is more jealous, more zealous um, than our stubborn resistance. God kept tracking him like a hound tracks a fox. And that is God. He keeps coming for us. And then the picture that we see is Jesus is standing outside the door. I think he does this every day. And he's like, hey, you going to open the door today? So I could come in and be with you? And so many times, we opt for something so much less than what he wants to give. We kind of have a religious relationship with Jesus. But the problem with religion is it feels very empty. It tends to be formulaic. Um, and, you know, it just isn't what we are looking for. Religion is trying to figure out how to get God to do what we need him to do. But really what God wants to do is to become so part of our lives that we can walk through every day with him and experience an ongoing personal relationship with him. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, he describes how there's this, there's a, there's a lot of people that have a sort of a, a formal relationship with Jesus, but not a personal one. 
And in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus issues this warning. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. What a sad commentary. I was religious. I attended church. I was respectful and polite, but I never knew you. God wants us to have a relationship with him that is real and personal and life-giving. Now, I've got three things to close, three ways that will always make our relationships better. You know, relationships have to be invested in. You don't just accidentally end up with the best friend. There are some key elements necessary in the development of genuine friendship. And the first one is time. It's time. You can't microwave a friendship. Some of the richest friendships of our lives are relationships that we have had for a long time. We've been through the ups and downs in the relationship. You know, have you ever had a friend you got mad at? And then you talk to them again and you came to a better understanding and things got better and time. You know, I remember after I... Cindy and I got married, and we were serving as missionaries in the Philippines. We had a, we have, we had a house full of kids, honestly. You know, we, we have five kids, and those were chaotic times. As I look back at the videos, I can, I can just remember, oh, my goodness, they're all coming at me at the same time. I can't meet everybody's need. You know, it was a beautiful and wonderful time, but I look back at those videos, and I'm thinking, wow, that was a deal. And I remember one day I came home for lunch and my wife um, asked, she said, you know, Eddie, I need to talk to you. And I said, uh, okay, but I've got to leave. I mean, I was busy training leaders, planning churches, growing a church. And, and I, I, I said to her, you know, I, 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 I don't have time. She says, no, 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 no. I need you to have time right now. Will you please sit down? Well, there's times in, a, in our, a life, you know, as a husband, that you realize, I think I better sit down. You know, the first person usually to know that something's going wrong in the relationship is the woman. They're, they're, they're wired to be a whole lot more relationally sensitive, I think, as a general rule than the men. And so, you know, we, I just need to talk to you about something. She sat me down, and this is what she said. She says, Eddie... It feels to me a lot like you and me, our parents together, we are missionaries together, but I don't feel the you and me anymore like I used to. And I'm the husband, right? And I'm clueless, really. I thought everything was okay. I, I, I wish 
that you and me, she would always ask me, hey, Eddie, do you want to have a cup of coffee? And, you know, it took me a while to figure out that that didn't mean was I thirsty. It was her, it was her way of saying, can you sit down and spend time with me? Can we process our lives together? I don't want to just get through the day and get all of our jobs done. I need you. I need time with you. You know, if you and I want to have a relationship with God, we're going to have to prioritize spending time with him. Unrushed time. And that's why it's so important for us to develop and practice the disciplines of spending time with God that would include reading the Bible. Not reading the Bible just for information purposes, but reading the Bible in a way that lets you be in the presence of God in case he has something to tell you. Um, prayer. Talking to God. Prioritizing worship. Because sometimes in a service like this, God can say something to you that no other environment allows him to say. I attend our Wednesday night men's Bible study. And you know what I love about that is we have good teaching and then we have about 20 minutes of discussion at our table. And I just love it because I have guys at my table um, that are older than, uh, younger than me, um, some that are very young, and we just all discuss what's going on, and I learn from them. And this is part of my discipline of intentionally making time to be in the presence of God. First thing that you have to have in a relationship is time. Second thing is honesty. Honesty. I don't mean meanness, okay? I know some people are so honest, they're just flat out mean. You always should, always should have grace. But honesty is so important. In a relationship, you've got to get beyond sort of the routine conversation that should include, so kids, how was school today? And the answer is, fine. Now can I go play my video game? Okay, have you ever experienced that? All right, this is the way it works. Or you ask your wife or your other, other people, how are you today? We're, we're fine, we're doing okay. I love you, I love you too. Now these are important beginning exchanges, right? I don't minimize the importance of these sort of introductory uh, exchanges. However, if you really want to have a relationship, a friendship that includes an intimacy, you're going to have to get to the place where you can speak from the heart, where you can tell God what's really going on. You know, um, I remember one time I was experiencing some painful loss in my life. And I didn't understand what in the world God was doing. Why did he allow this? And, and I remember that I, uh, 
I was, I was praying. I prayed a lot. I realized I was pretty much just complaining a lot and calling it prayer until one day I told God in my prayer that I was kind of angry at him. And I didn't know why in the world he allowed this thing in my life. I told him that it confused me. And somehow when I actually verbalized those things, something changed inside of me. It was a turning point. Because here's the truth about God. If you're mad at God and angry at God, you can't hide that from God. An honest conversation between us and God means, I'm going to tell you what I really am feeling, what I, I am really feeling. You know, we just need to say, God, here's, here's the deal. I'm struggling, and here, here are the sins that are creeping into my heart. And I need to tell you, God. Okay, so God, I'm angry, I'm jealous, I'm struggling with greed, I'm struggling with lust, I, I feel hate and bitterness toward people in my life, and, and, and God, I'm even upset with you from time to time. And you know, when you're that honest with God, God is never gonna say, oh, you're kidding me, you're that bad? He already knows. When we get honest with God, he can help us. Like, God, there's this thing in my life I know you're not pleased with, and it's not good, and it brings me down, but I love it so much, and, and I don't know what to do. And I'm acting like you don't know about it, but today, here it is. Would you help me? And the beautiful thing about having an honest conversation with God is that he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is compassionate, and he's merciful, and he's ready to forgive. And the Bible says that God is for us, not against us. His compassions do not fail his mercies are renewed every day. So that's why I can, I can just tell him. Because God, the reason I'm telling you this is because I, I want to open this door. Because I'm dying by myself and I need your help. And the third thing that makes friendship powerful and wonderful is this thing called mutual submission. Okay. You might say, well, wait, wait a second here. I get it. Time, I'll give that. Uh, honesty, okay. I'm even willing to go there. But mutual submission, like I'm going to surrender my life to God. Now that's getting a little scary. I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. Okay, right? Do you ever feel that? Yes, of course we do. In the Bible, actually, when it talks about developing a relationship between husband and wives, it, the one thing that it says is that you should submit yourselves one to another. And what does mutual submission really look like and feel like? Mutual submission is basically this. Okay, I'm here. 
I am submitting my life and myself to you. I will take all of my strength, all of my abilities, all of my talents, and I will use them for your best interest. And you are going to take all of your strength and abilities and talents, and you're going to use them for my best interest. And, and, and here's the honest truth. The first one to submit is God, because God sent his only son and he died on a cross and he says, I give you everything I have. I'm gonna die for you. Now will you submit to me because you will never find someone more for you than me. You know, when I discovered that, it was, it was a game changer. Look, I'm scared to surrender everything to you. But I'm not scared to surrender everything to God because Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but had delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also uh, freely give us all things? So God is saying, hey, you know, I led the way by giving you my only begotten son that I love so very much. I started with the hardest. Don't you think I'm going to give you everything else you need? And the beautiful thing about this passage is uh, God says, hey, listen, I stand at the door and I knock. Are you going to open the door? Are you going to let me in? If you let me in, I will come in and I'll be your friend. And I'll change everything. I think it's incredible that God wants to be our friend. I don't know about you, but this blows me away. And I'd like to invite you, if you would, to please um, stand. And we're going to pray together as we conclude.